Hello, all you dreamers, optimists, and junior Tomorrow-nots. Welcome to the Tomorrowland Times podcast, the unofficial home for fans of Disney's 2015 Tomorrowland movie, its prequel novel Before Tomorrowland, and the alternate reality game that introduced us to its fictional universe all the way back in 2013, The Optimist. I'm Nick. And I'm Hasten. And this is the eighth episode in our 12-part series in which we'll be taking a deep dive into Brad Bird, Damon Lindelof, and Jeff Jensen's sci-fi family adventure and budding cult classic. Well, before we get into our show section for today, Hasten, we've got a little bit of an update about the upcoming Disney Plus release of Tomorrowland in North America, which is, of course, on September 1st, which seems oh so long away. We haven't yet heard back from our studio rep that we inquired about the potential 4K release, but I did do a little bit of sleuthing online into the territories throughout the world where those licensing deals aren't holding up Tomorrowland quite as long. And I dug into the UK release where it is, of course, called Tomorrowland colon a world beyond. And as far as I can tell, it was not available in 4K on the UK version of Disney Plus. And the bigger disappointment is that the selection of extra features available were dismal. Not only did they not include those two exclusive Disney movies anywhere deleted scenes, Young Frank and the World's Fair sequences, but it didn't even include all of the material that's on the Blu-ray release and you can find on many other streaming platforms where you purchase the film. So... It's possible that when it comes out in America, that will represent an upgrade to what's available throughout the world. But I'm just preparing us for potential disappointment, because if they just flip a switch and make the same version available here, that's already out everywhere else. This is not going to be the definitive release of the film for fans who have been waiting. But to be fair, this will give access to the film to a bunch of people that did not have access to it previously. And we hope that if you are listening to this podcast because you found this film, in September, October, November on Disney Plus that you're enjoying it. And we would encourage you to seek out the physical release to look at some of the other deleted scenes and other aspects that are available for this film beyond just what was available on Disney Plus. And if you buy the physical version, plug that digital code into Disney Movies Anywhere and enjoy the two most interesting deleted scenes that aren't available anywhere else as of now. For today's episode, we are covering the runtime which begins at 1 hour 15 minutes and 18 seconds to 1 hour 26 minutes and 37 seconds, which comprises our lead trio's journey into Tomorrowland itself. Hasten, this part of the movie is so much fun. This is the real adventure portion. We're on our way, things are happening, rapid fire, and the environments and interactions that happen in this section, I've always been a huge fan of, and I just feel like they... The pace is so satisfying here. We get a lot of neat lore in this section of the film. And, you know, the scene that gave me the chills the first time I saw it in the theater. So I have a lot of love for this particular section. You want in? I'll bring you in. Why not? Better than waiting around here and getting hunted and killed, etc., etc. That's his spirit, etc. What's the etc? The three intrepid Tomorrowknots on the screen enter this shed that's attached to the TV station that we left at the last episode. And underneath a rolling cart, Frank finds a hatch that leads down underground into what we now know is a wire station. Now, this was one of the few 
pieces of lore that was firmly established in that prequel novel before Tomorrowland. There was a lot of discussion and development of that fictional technology in that book. And for those who read it before the film came out, this was the moment when that all culminated. You saw all of those wires leading into that pod. And this was the moment things were starting to happen. Everything was converging. The history of Plus Ultra and the current momentum of our adventurers uh, were coming head to head for the first real physical moment here. So inside the wire station, so everybody's inside, everybody's getting settled. You have Athena uh, examining these braille instructions, which is great. A very easy way for the AAs to get a bunch of written directions. One of my favorite things from a timeline perspective is sitting on the back counter in the wire station itself is this old IBM PCAT computer with all of these random post-it notes that are completely stuck over it. I love this because it establishes that, oh, we were going to open this up to the world in like the 1980s just so perfectly with that classic IBM XTPC back there. Right. This is exactly what would have been laying around the last time Athena was there, which, as she mentions in this very scene, was about 25 years ago. So after that moment, everything just kind of froze. This might have been a busily trafficked for, I assume, higher up plus ultra members station. But now it just hasn't been touched in all those years. There's a lot of great world building going on just in the set design here, as you described. And it also sets up this moment for Casey to be immediately curious, asking so many questions and sort of landing on the correct answer, which impresses Frank for a second. He gives her this look and she says, I know how things work. And his response I have always loved, which is, I'll zippity-doo for you. It's such a cynical performance of a very whimsical line. And either Frank as a child saw a theatrical re-release of Song of the South, or he was just examining the contents of his pockets. Because another thing I noticed recently, the powder that he and Casey consume in order to prepare for this journey, it's this little paper bag and if you freeze frame it, you can see that the bag is labeled Zip E. Like it's not handwritten or anything. It's actually a labeled product of some kind. And a cursory search revealed no real world results. So I don't know if this is an instance where the prop designers needed to do something for this prop and were looking at the screenplay and saw this line from Frank, well, zippity do for you, and decided to riff on that for something that would ostensibly not get much screen time. In fact, only a few frames here. But I thought that was amusing. And, you know, it's possible that he was rifling through his pockets, saw that he had adequately prepared for this adventure, and the phrase zippy was fresh in his mind. Wrap this around your eyes tight. Why? Because justice is blind. Just... Do it, kid. We get a lot of surly one-liners from Frank in this scene, and I just love his attitude throughout this. I find it really funny. From zippity-doo for you to, uh, you know, telling Casey to put these over your eyes, and she asks why, and he says, because justice is blind. Just do it. And it's like, he's so sarcastic, and he's not going to give her anything. She's just going to keep asking questions, and he's got nothing for her, culminating in her... <laughs> Or asking what, you know, a, a fair question. What is he asking me to put in my mouth before we do this? And he just says, powder. <laughs> now, the thing he says after he gives her nothing and just says powder is an interesting line that I don't think I ever paid attention to until I read it in the screenplay. He yells outside 
the pod to Athena, who's dealing with all the controls, and he asks if they're at Vant Hoff. We at Vant Hoff. Good to go. Hasten, did that ever stick out to you? Because I didn't know what that was until I Googled it. No, I had not even recalled hearing that until you brought that up in the screenplay. I think literally every time I've watched it, I'm laughing so hard at him just saying powder. I didn't even think about what he was saying to Athena. And indeed, Vant Hoff references the Vant Hoff equation, which is a concept within equilibrium chemistry. So this is all about uh, chemical reactions, changes in temperatures, reaching equilibrium, the standard enthalpy change. Enthalpy. That's a word you don't get an opportunity to say too often, is it? You set up for the tower? There is still a receiver there. Don't say check! How long ago was that? 25 years ago. Frank tells Athena to set it for the tower and just double checks that there is still a receiver there. She confirms, yeah, last time she checked. And he asks when that was. And this is when Athena says 25 years ago, roughly. And Frank starts to put the pieces together in a way that the audience has kind of already had the opportunity to. He's starting to do the math and realizing they threw you out too. And we have a little deleted line here from Athena. In the movie, she just nods. But in the screenplay, she says, things just weren't the same without you. And Casey throws in another critical jab. Okay, guys, weird. And as with last episode, I'm glad that they didn't continually hang a lantern on the unique dynamic. I also love when Frank is running down for Casey, what's about to happen to her. He ends on the very practical advice. Don't pee on us because, you know, we're all sharing this pod together. It's a small pod. And just the perfect line reading from Britt Robertson when she, with her ears covered by these headphones, uh, screams out, this sounds spectacular. I, <laughs> there's, this is a funny scene. Like one after the other, we, we know enough about these characters. Now the personalities are all firmly in place and they can really riff off each other. And so I find all of the character work in these scenes really satisfying. With Casey fully blinded and her ears covered, Frank takes a moment to connect with Athena one-on-one, just straight up asks her, Why now? Why her? Athena makes literal what the audience could subtextually interpret up to this point by saying, Because she hasn't given up. You think she can fix it? Athena furrows her brow, wasn't expecting that response from him. What makes you say that? And there's this look right here on George Clooney's face that I think might be his greatest acting moment in the entire movie. He does say, Can't you, Athena? But his eyes are glossed over. There's this crack in his armor. His facade is melting away. And we're seeing a glimmer of hope literally reflected in his eyes. This is a man who has not only given up on his life, but accepted the grim fate of the entire world. Right here, we see on his face that he's willing to believe again, that it's possible to save humanity. It's a vulnerable moment, and he's looking for some reassurance that this might be possible, if only the sliver of possibility. But of course, that's not something Athena can give to him. The most she can offer is... I have no idea. Let's go find out. And I think that's a really hopeful way to push ourselves into what is essentially the last act of the movie. I also love that in this moment, on a lighter note, Athena as an AA requires no goggles and no ear protection. She can go through this process without losing any blood sugar because she doesn't require blood sugar. What I love about the scene is, is that you get this very, this just wacky expression on Casey's face while it's happening. It's just the acting she did for this scene was perfect. 
Uh, and then you've got Frank, who's clearly been through it a million times, but is still a little disoriented and a little uncomfortable, right? But no, it's just the the compare and contrast between Casey freaking out, you know, Frank trying to hold himself, and then Athena just sort of looking around is fantastic. You get some really surreal imagery here, which calls to mind a later film that would come out after this, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Was it part two? Yeah, when they're flying through the jump. That one pushes it a little further, but I think they, they found just the tastefully appropriate level of surreal here. It's more chromatic aberrations and visual distortions with faces kind of physically intact, but visually the lens we're seeing them through being distorted. Kind of a great sort of setup to a few minutes later when they actually ride the spectacle through the jump. Similar breaches of uh, the laws of nature. <laughs> they are traversing the untraversable. So we cut to another closet and now a door on the wall instead of the ceiling pops open and we can see that they're laying down. So their orientation from the perspective of the pod hasn't changed. It's just that what they walk out into is oriented differently. I really love this moment when they crawl out and Frank's, you know, distraught, but keeping his cool. Casey is just clamor. She's falling over herself. It's a really great bit of physical comedy as she falls out of this pod. You have this great physical comedy of... She falling out. Athena is just playing it completely cool. She flips on the breaker to turn the lights on in what appears to be some sort of maintenance maintenance room. With I love the idea of this extremely old piece of tech that nobody uses, but everyone's afraid to touch it because it looks like it might be important. <laughs> and then, right. you know, uh, Frank says there's a Coke in the fridge. She pulls it out. Of course, being an audio animatronic, She's great at opening bottles without bottle openers. I love that. <laughs> and then inside the fridge, there are these batteries that I assume is for the maintenance person, whoever works in this in this room. And it's just funny to think about these two extremely old, extremely new, extremely question mark bottles of Coke that are inside the fridge. Right. And that's the question. I don't personally think that Athena switching that breaker was her turning on the fridge. I think the fridge has been on. The question of how old the Coke bottles are is interesting because it looks like they're cold. It looks like there is some condensation on these Coke bottles. And doing some research, there are plenty of YouTube videos, if you'd like to fall down this rabbit hole, of people drinking increasingly old bottles of Coke. So if these are new Cokes, obviously there's not a problem. However, I don't know the last time we have sold Coca-Cola bottles that didn't have a printed label on the glass bottle. These are traditionally embossed Coca-Cola logos. So I think it's safe to assume that they're trying to communicate that these are older Cokes. And indeed, you can find plenty of videos online of people drinking Coca-Cola bottles older than this and saying that they taste just fine, although they've lost their carbonation. Which, given that she burps later in the scene, could just be due to excessive consumption, or there could still be carbonation, so these could be new. I will say, you know, a fun detail at the time that this film came out is uh, Coke was doing those printed Coke bottles, the share a Coke with name or whatever. Oh, that's and right. And so immediately, immediately after the movie, I ordered a I ordered a six pack, and of course, two that I had to include were, uh, or three I included were share a bottle of Coke with Casey, Athena, and Frank. I thought that was a lot of fun. 
Another great comedic turn from Britt Robertson here, though, when Frank turns around and reveals her standing there sheepishly after <laughs> everyone in that room heard the a series of escalating burps. The look on her face when she says, excuse me, it's so tone perfect. She knew exactly the movie that she was in. And these are the scenes where she really gets a chance to shine comedically. I also love the idea that Frank's been through this so many times. He doesn't really need it. He doesn't really care. She's already halfway through the second one. And then he says, help yourself, which is, again, just just fantastic. Well, remember, Frank and Casey both had their packets of Zip-E powder, <laughs> whatever Zip-E powder is. I, I do wish that there was some kind of official Tomorrowland art book that compiled all of the graphics uh, done for the film. We'll have to reach out to Clint Schultz and ask if he personally designed the paper label for the Zip-E powder packets. So they open the door and you have this sort of swelling version of the plus ultra theme. And I just love the whole way that this scene was done. Frank and Athena are on the move, ready to do the next thing. And Casey hesitates and she looks out and they do this, this wide pan back and it's the Eiffel Tower. And you just hear that blazing plus ultra theme. It's a love letter to the origins of this story and where they wanted to go with it. And for me sitting in the theater and seeing it this first time, this was this giant sort of payoff. And, you know, personally, I had just gone to the actual Eiffel Tower like four or five months before the film dropped, because absolutely after The Optimist, I wanted to go to the Eiffel Tower when we went to when we went to Paris and go to the top. And so I remember sitting in the movie, giddy, over, are they going to show the room? Because the real one has a room. Are they going to show the room? And the thing that blew me away is that when I went up to the Eiffel Tower originally, I didn't know that that room actually existed and that they had like these two bad dummy props of Vern and Eiffel. But we get to this point where there's just this great, great Eiffel Tower payoff. And I just, I love it. And not only do they go into that room, it's a lot bigger than it is in real life, isn't it? Yes. In real life, it's like it holds like maybe a person and a half. But thanks to movie magic. Oh, it's perfect artistic license because the movie is recontextualizing and reimagining a historical event. This meeting at the top of the tower at the 1889 World's Fair absolutely happened. In the Tomorrowland fictional universe, there was just a couple more people there. So for each of those new attendees, the office gets a little bit bigger. It makes perfect sense to me. The reveal of Paris as this grand city outside the platform on which they're standing in this moment brings us into the location station. The hover rail will be arriving in one minute. Everything we see at this part of the sequence was built on a soundstage that had a blue screen uh, all the way around so that they could put in the view of Paris outside there, which of course not only enabled them to film where you would absolutely not be able to film in the real world, uh, it also allowed them to do this and expand the uh, existing office into a filmic cinematic size and have the secret doors and everything else. However, they did do some filming in Paris for this movie on the ground level. Some of the reaction shots from the crowd 
and uh, presumably some of the uh, Dave Clark AAs pulling up. Any excuse for Brad Bird to be able to take a trip to Paris. That's that's just what I'm hearing. Clearly, the man loves Paris. There's no question. Ratatouille is his absolute love letter to Paris. I don't think Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol went to Paris, but I'd be happy to be corrected about that. So as they're initially coming out onto this platform, we get this announcement over the PA that the observation tower is closed and there is a guard just down the way from them. So they hide around this corner and Frank gives Casey this little tuning fork, which is a little a little handheld prop that he instructs her on the proper use of, you know, just give a tap on the neck. And if they're human, they'll pass right out. If they're an AA, it'll just annoy them. This is a cobbled together homemade version by Frank. Later in the movie, in a future episode, we will see a sleek Tomorrowland version of the tuning fork used by Nix on Frank. More on that in the future. I love the interaction as Casey says, oh my God, it's Paris. And then Frank goes, stop, stop being so amazed at everything. And she's like, I thought you wanted me to not ask questions and just be amazed. Yeah, it's, it's just, <laughs> again, by this point in time in the adventure, the chemistry between all of them is just fantastic. And that's a fairly recent callback, but it still pays off beautifully. In this moment, we also get a little bit of a deleted scene that was included on the Blu-ray, which is a callback to Athena's claim of having X-ray vision, which is how she knows that there is an Edison tube in Frank's bag. Here, Frank just says, can't you use your X-ray vision to see if he's an AA or not? And it is revealed that Athena was indeed lying. She does not have X-ray vision. She has not had a great deal of upgrades in the intervening 25 years, which we wouldn't assume that she did. But this is another moment that allows Frank to, to warn Casey about the deceptions of the little girl who, when he was a boy, declined to inform him that she was a robot and he believed was a real person. And he felt so betrayed. And that's why... They are the way that they are. So Casey walks boldly out towards this guard who informs her again that uh, the observation tower is closed. She makes an overly broad gesture, not really playing it too cool, and smacks the guy in the neck. He passes out and she gladly proclaims he's human. And in the screenplay, we have a little interstitial scene, which we would smash cut to after her declaration of this poor guard who has passed out on the floor being human. We cut to a dark room in Tomorrowland. This was a scene that we know was storyboarded to be shot during the film's limited reshoots, but never did end up being shot. They got as far as doing those storyboards, but decided that it would be an unnecessary cutaway. But it does represent a fairly interesting character moment, so I thought that we would dramatize it for you now. Interior, dark room, Tomorrowland, night. We're close on an image of apocalypse, rioting or flooding, slightly transparent, 2D, floating in space as we hear a slightly familiar voice sing, Man has a dream, and that's a start. A hand drifts in, grips the image, slides it out of the way, as the other hand grips another visual of Armageddon, sliding it into place before him. He follows his dream with mind and heart, pulling back to see a man, his back to us. He's the one singing and watching. Now another image, another stacking these videos of doom and gloom. Yes, they're the same as what we saw in Frank's house there in the empty space before them. 
And when it becomes a reality, it's a dream come true for you and me. The man drags one last image in, a futuristic digital readout, a countdown clock, just a couple hours beyond where Frank's was. The hands expand the countdown like a conductor, bringing his orchestra to crescendo. It's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, shining at the end of... The singing abruptly stops as a Tomorrowland functionary strides into the room behind the man. Governor Nix? What is it? Six AA units trace the Athena unit to a house in upstate New York. Frank Walker? He refused to surrender, sir. And? He blew up his house. And? A wire transfer station nearby went active shortly after. There was a transmission. To the Eiffel Station in Paris. Now the figure turns, amused, and it is, of course, Nix, the same man who dismissed Frank Walker's jetpack at the World's Fair so long ago. He is barely aged. The functionary is surprised Nix is one step ahead of him. He shouldn't be. Sir, the spectacle. It's just a myth, isn't it? It doesn't actually work. Oh, something tells me it works now. The functionary, of course, is not in on the joke. He's mocking young Frank. Sir? Nix narrows his eyes, intense. Activate the units in Paris, immediately. And we hard cut to exterior, base of the Eiffel Tower. Screech! Tires squeal as a van pulls up to the tower. The door slides open and out steps three AA units. White teeth. Not Dave Clark, but certainly of his ilk. Call their leader, Pierre Clark. Pierre glances up at the tower. The two other units do the same, like a flock of birds in sync. So first of all, I love that the French AA leader is called Pierre Clark. Let's get that out of the way right here. That's fantastic. I don't think this scene with Nix would have belonged in the movie, but it's a wonderful glimpse into what's happening on the other side, right? We don't really get to see a lot of him on his own. We don't get to see any of him on his own. And so this feels like a reaction to a studio note to get more Nix into the movie, but we don't actually learn anything new here. Every piece of information that's being made explicit is completely discernible from the rest of the movie. There's really no other option than what's being said here. You know, when the AA units show up in Paris, there's no question as to who sent them. Uh, I think it was an interesting idea to cut away because the only other cutaway from any of our three leads in the movie is to the Dave Clark's in the aftermath of the blast from the past explosion. We don't really get any other than that. This would have represented only the second other in the film. And the reason it seems extraneous to me is we're getting very close to the point where Casey, Frank and Athena are going to get to Tomorrowland and meet Nick's anyway. So why would the movie cut away and show you Nick's when we're just about to meet him with the heroes, why why shouldn't the audience learn that this guy hasn't aged and see his position in Tomorrowland with the rest of the characters? Yeah, I mean, this is a case where, like, I could personally maybe see this scene a little bit earlier in the film, right out, right, like right after he blows up his house. But then the problem of it, the problem is, is that then you have this problem of you reveal Nick's very early, and you're like, oh, I guess they're just like. Like, then you lose some of the adventure because it's like, oh, he appeared now. He's probably going to appear again later and they're going to meet him. So, yeah, unfortunately, while I love the idea of Hugh Laurie singing A Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow to these apocalyptic images, like, I can just see it in my mind. It's just so fantastic. 
and I'm sad it didn't make it in. It just, it really doesn't work no matter where you put it in the film. Structurally, it's an untenable moment for the shape of this movie. Uh, as a piece of ephemera that we can look back at now, it is fascinating because any glimpse into what's going on with Nyx, you know, so much in the film is left open to interpretation. So to have this moment is a wonderful little side piece of information as a fan of the movie, but every bit of it, even the character moments, I really do think you get, you know, the idea of Nyx surrounding himself with doom and gloom, that look, it's not even a line of dialogue. We'll talk about this when we get there in a later episode, but the look on Nyx's face when Casey is thumbing through all of those apocalyptic images we see everything we need to see. These are images he is familiar with, too familiar with, and he has fully accepted the fate of the world just as the rest of the world has at this point in the story. And then we would have cut back to what I suspect, Taston, is the scene that you were referring to as one of your favorites in the film, where they round the corner into the office at the top of the Eiffel Tower, and we hear the low, soulful version of the plus ultra theme that is my personal favorite statement of that theme by Giacchino. There's something so reminiscent and nostalgic about how the horns play the plus ultra theme in this moment. And as someone who played the optimist and was familiar with the concept of the founding members of plus ultra, having that beautiful theme play over the reveal of the four mannequins it was an overwhelming moment. It's really, I think it plays emotionally. It felt real in that moment. Like, oh my God, the film did it. It's real. This two-year adventure that we've been on, reading the books and, you know, playing the alternate reality game and whatever. Like, in this moment, all of that, all of that hype felt real. There are a limited number of examples of how alternate reality games have tied into the films that have inspired them to differing levels of success. I think right here, between this moment where we see the physical manifestation of the backstory that we experienced in the real world, and in the previous segment of the film, where Athena says she wasted years on other potential recruits, fully well knowing that that was essentially us, the players, you know, I think it stands as one of the more successful moments, particularly when in tandem with the Before Tomorrowland prequel novel, this is just a really satisfying moment. I'd say just as satisfying as all of those players of the Flynn Lives viral marketing campaign for Tron Legacy uh, felt when they saw the film and one of the hinging dramatic moments is on this pager message that one of the characters received and all those players knew that was me. We helped get that message through. That was one of those switcheroos, of course, where we realized as players, we ended up helping the villain of the film. But needless to say, these are uh, really unique transmedia moments where the ramifications of your interactions with that kind of viral campaign seem to have a direct connection to the narrative of the movie when it eventually comes out. And of course, in the alternate reality game, the unassuming connection that I don't even think the developers of the alternate reality game knew about the Edison tube. I can tell you that they knew it was in the screenplay, but they were not sure if it would make the final cut or not. So there was an aspect of, we're gonna put this Edison tube in there, to my understanding of how the development went, and it was just a nice big payoff when not only did it make it into the movie, it is indeed the key that unlocks their escape. 
And it's another fantastic bit of music. I mean, going from the plus ultra theme to, you know, Le Marseillaise, the French national anthem, which Giacchino has re-recorded with his orchestra so that they can start the music as a diegetic source sound from this antique phonograph that he places the Edison tube onto, but it transitions into non-diegetic music, unencumbered and completely crystal clear on the soundtrack before it transitions back into the rousing version of the plus ultra theme. So historically, there were many different kinds of Edison tubes that were produced featuring that particular song. And one of them does indeed feature that gold molded record label seen in the film. And that's the Edison gold molded record number 40, 40. So if anyone out there wants to get their own functioning Edison tube that has La Marseillaise, even if it's not the version that Giacchino re-recorded for the movie, that would be a cool craft project if anyone wanted to lathe their own wax cylinder with the a Tomorrowland movie version of the song. Uh, you can go out and find number 40. They do pop up on eBay from time to time, and it's just a fun little souvenir to have. So when they enter the room and Frank is closing the windows and he's talking about, he's talking about uh, plus ultra and he's talking about, Oh, they hated it because, you know, Eiffel built this and the, the Parisians hated it. And, you know, it was actually an antenna and he turns, he's describing everything. And in one of the best, like, like Frank being bought in on this and, and, and loving this history and loving being a part of this, he turns to Casey with this just huge smile on his face, describing the history of Plus Ultra and like, you know, the conflict between the founders and whatever else. And in that moment, you really get this, like, I love that sort of full circle of, you know, he's old and grumpy just 30 minutes ago. And now he's like fully back immersed in it. And he, he can't, he can't not smile thinking about, the history and what he was involved with and what he was a big part of and how important it was. It's the face of a man who has not been allowed to talk about one of the most exciting things in his life for decades. You know, this, he's probably not even conscious of it in this moment, but it's, as you're saying, seeping through the performance. He's giddy because, oh yeah, I've been bound by this contract to not talk to anyone about this. And suddenly here's this person who through fate I'm now able to talk to about and be the person to inform all of the interesting historical details about this thing that was amazing to me. And this is where we start to get a little bit of that. What does Casey have to offer Frank? What does Frank have to offer Casey? And in this moment, she is giving him an opportunity to reconnect with that younger version of himself that he's buried so deep. And it's just a really beautiful, casual, and yet layered moment of performance and the fun the fun duality between she knows how everything's works she interrupts him she goes it's not an antenna and then he's he goes would you stop interrupting me and then you have this just you have this fantastic more excited exposition about everything and like i love the sort of duality between we have this scene previously where she figures out how the satellite dish works right away you have this sort of questioning in this scene and then you have uh, Frank going on this great diatribe about how this was designed to find another world. It's just that even the duality between the wire transfer scene and here in the spectacle is just it's it's 
perfect mirroring of the two of them. And Athena has to cut Frank off because he gets carried away from himself. And this is actually another one of those instances where there's a little bit of a half line of dialogue in the movie that's not in the screenplay. And I really love it. It's the moment when Frank's talking about Tesla and Edison, who everyone knows hated each other. And so in the screenplay, it just says that they really detested each other and Athena cuts him off. I do love that Clooney in the movie sneaks in the word alternating as if he's going to start talking about alternating currents. French hated this thing when Eiffel first unveiled it at the Paris World's Fair. They thought it was an eyesore. Eiffel didn't care though. It wasn't meant to be a monument. It was meant to find another world. Le Quatre Premier. Plus Ultra's first four. They were a part of all this? Eiffel, Jules Verne, Tesla, and Mr. Edison. So there is a concept that did not make it into the movie, and I have scant little production documentation to suggest that it was ever seriously considered, except for a few interesting pieces of concept art that were done for the production that show the mannequins in more active, different positions than they're shown in the film. And I start to wonder, did they explore the possibility that when they entered the office, these would be audio animatronic versions of the founders and not simply static mannequins. And the one thing that really points to that is there was a series of three connected pieces of concept art by the artist Tully Summers for the film that show the figure of Eiffel himself, Gustave Eiffel, and his face melts away Presumably during the launch sequence of the spectacle, they may have cut back to those figures and it showed the outer layer melt back and reveal an AA understructure, much like we see with Ursula's head earlier in the movie. I think that would have been a really interesting moment. I don't know that it could have sustained an actual conversation with these pre-programmed AAs, but the idea of looking back and seeing that they weren't simply mannequins, it would be another interesting layer that uh, I don't know how far in development that got, but these, these pieces of art by Tully are really interesting, and I'll make sure that we link to them in the show notes. Yeah, it's one of those things where, I, I mean, I sort of love the concept of you have these four static figures designed to protect the spectacle, you know, right before somebody uses it because it's the, you know, it's the, it's one of the, it's going to cause a scene. It's one of the only ways to get back to Tomorrowland. And I just, it's a neat concept that I love, especially in Tilly's artwork. I love the sort of duality between seeing Ursula's melted face and then Eiffel's melted face. It's, it's just, it's a fantastic idea. I will say, I like that they went with the static figures though, because it's very, it's very true to form to what's actually up there. Just kind of these cheap static figures that were just placed inside the room. But yeah, this would have been a really fun, this would have been a really fun concept. It makes it a much more reverential, deep history, it, long in the past of this fictional world that gives it more of a mystique, I think, by having them just be, like you said, traditional mannequin figures. Uh, I will say, though, you know, if I had a dream four and a half hour ultimate version of this movie, there would absolutely be a knockdown drag out kung fu fight between the four founders and the Pierre Clark uh, Nick's AAs. <laughs> And, you know, it would be great if, uh, a la Bumblebee, the four founders could only speak in quotes from their respective historical figure.
So Frank places that tube on the player. He brings down the sound horn. And as the song starts to play, the room comes alive. These walls turn into slats that push aside like blinds. And we see this incredible steampunk mission control, as it's described in the screenplay, uh, with these wearing gears. And the audience quickly starts to put together that this is a launch gantry. The Eiffel Tower is a launch gantry for an antique rocket ship. And just what could be a more tantalizing concept? The center of this steampunk mission control is what they refer to as the thinking machine. It's that uh, cylindrical piece with the spinning numbers. And uh, there's an interesting shift that occurred because this particularly central piece of set dressing was shown at the El Capitan uh, archive exhibit when the movie was showing. And we saw that one of the rotational sections had a Plus Ultra logo, but it was not the Plus Ultra logo that we had come to know both from The Optimist and on Athena's pin case in the film. This was a more antique looking Plus Ultra logo that had these little serifs on the ends of the strokes. And it was really interesting looking. But if you freeze frame the film itself, all of those antique versions of the Plus Ultra logo were digitally replaced with a kind of gold version that essentially is the modern Plus Ultra logo. I'm not sure why that decision was made, maybe to make it uh, more recognizable to the audience, even though each one is really only visible for a few frames. So it seems like um, an extensive solution to whatever problem they thought it presented. But I still have a lot of love for that antique Plus Ultra logo, as reflected in our new Tomorrowland Times Tee Public store, where we have a t-shirt that you can purchase with the Antique Plus Ultra logo on it if you'd like to help support the show. Once whatever this rotating series of numbers reaches its conclusion, a little bomb voyage nameplate pops out. We got a little party blower that comes out and little confetti pops everywhere and tiny little French flags. And uh, it's just a wonderful bit of world building for the level of fun and imagination that these founders put into even this, this mechanically obligatory sequence of events for their own their own personal escape pod, essentially. You ain't seen nothing yet. When we see the separation of the Eiffel Tower splitting down the middle, the side of the gantry that Frank Casey and Athena are on is on the other side from where the four mannequins are. And then we've got this little shot that we cut back to where we see the four founders pulling out of view and kind of shaking and becoming obscured through the platform. And to me, this is such a symbolic moment for what is happening in this story, because you've got the compelling foundations of the history that led up to the creation of Tomorrowland. And you've got that on one side of the aisle, and you've got linked with them, passing through them, passing through what they created, these three main characters. But now, in this moment, their decision to go back, their decision to confront Nyx, their decision to not accept their own fate, it separates them from all of the processes that led all the way back from the creation of Plus Ultra to eventually Nyx taking over and becoming this despotic ruler that shuts down Tomorrowland, walls it off. And this is, in my mind, the first visual representation of that separation. The idea that 
the Tomorrowland that will eventually be shaped by Frank, Casey, and Athena's input is going to be an evolution, a different beast than the one that was going to exist from that causal chain that started with Eiffel, Vern, Edison, and Tesla and led all the way to Nix. That was this unbroken evolutionary chain, this deterministic sequence of events that ended up with it being closed off. And now in order for it to be open to the world, these ideas of not the individual, not the one great man theory of history, but this community-based, open, dynamic, both conceptually and diverse within its own membership, that is going to change the landscape of what we knew as Tomorrowland. It failed before. You can't deny it. Once they get there, this vision of the future is not the city on the hill. This is not the aspirational thing that we all hoped it would be. And so the idea that our heroes are going to build something new, something better, something more inclusive, something more open, something more community-based, I think that begins right here, where we see the path start to split as literally the Eiffel Tower splits in half, and those figures of the past shrink out of view, and now we're just with our heroes. They are moving past the history. They are using the history. They are carrying it with them. They are letting it propel them, but they're also leaving it behind and they're forging their own brighter path. We have this nice tilt down shot looking up at the gantry opening and we tilt down to the floor kind of irising open where the spectacle will emerge from and we'll see it for the first time. I wonder if this is a fully digital shot. I'm not entirely sure. This could be something where they picked up a plate to use as reference on location when they were shooting there. Uh, unclear, but regardless, the fact that I don't know speaks to how great of a job ILM did on this sequence. Just amazing. Let's talk a little bit about the, the aesthetic design of the spectacle. You know, obviously you can just say to someone, steampunk rocket ship, and they might imagine something that looks roughly like this. But on top of that, there is this historical element that speaks to not only the history of Plus Ultra, but a little bit of Disney history as well, Disney film history. In the screenplay, it is explicitly called out that the spectacle rocket ship looks like if you imagined Nemo's Nautilus submarine upright as a spaceship. And so I think that's why you're seeing in this design those scalloped ridges and those fins along the body. That's not necessarily uh, an expected design element, but it does show up here. And it feels like it's directly mirroring specifically the Walt Disney 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea movie version of Nemo's Nautilus submarine, the one that has become an icon. And indeed, if you will remember, the exact design of which we see in the History of Plus Ultra short film that is sometimes attached to the beginning of this. And going back to our previous conversation about the Disney Plus extra features snafu, not only is that short not attached to the movie, it's not even available to watch in the extras. So at the very least, I hope the American release of this film gives you the option to watch the animated short because it is so essential to the backstory of this. And I've recently discovered a very interesting connection that reaches back even farther into the movie from this Nautilus submarine reference uh, in the spectacle's design. Every few months, I like to go online and do my rounds, checking in on the public portfolios of some of the concept and production artists that worked on Tomorrowland to see if they've 
uh, been willing to share uh, additional work that they did on the movie now that it's uh, five or six years in the past. And indeed, we found some very interesting art that's become available in the last four months, one of which that came to my attention particularly was a set of storyboards done by the artist Rodolfo DiMaggio. And he did a lot of work for this movie, both in the conceptualization of the visuals of the city itself, but also in scene by scene storyboards for the movie. And the one that caught my eye most of all was a storyboard for Frank's first jetpack flight from the beginning of the movie after the Goliath robot successfully repairs his jetpack and he's taking flight through the 1964 version of Tomorrowland. Uh, there were a lot of like cartoon style sight gags of him zooming in and out and around and almost bumping into construction projects and zipping in and out. And it's a really fun series of gags, but it culminates in him flying over the water. And unlike in the film, when he lands on what is seemingly just a platform like any other, where Nyx and Athena are showing around the Nyx 6, in this, what I have to assume, very, very early version of a storyboard for the scene, he's flying over the water, and out of the water comes the Nautilus itself, looking exactly like the version from Walt Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And it surfaces, and the hatch opens, and Athena and Nyx come out of the top of the Nautilus. And that entire last scene, Frank says it works now, and he asks Athena, what is this place? And they turn around and they look at the cityscape. That was in this conception of that scene, in this storyboard, going to take place on top of the Nautilus from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And I just think that's such a crazy cool idea, not only tying together the history of Jules Verne in Plus Ultra, but the cinematic legacy of the Walt Disney Company. I think that would have just been an incredible moment, but obviously very expensive and very uh, niche in its appeal, probably. If they did that now, you could just you could just feature the card at the end of the film on Disney Plus that says, be sure to watch 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. As everyone should, by the way. It's wonderful to watch the majestic Kurt Douglas play a guitar that he's made out of a sea turtle and talking about a whale of a tail. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful movie. And James Mason is fabulous. If Tomorrowland was made back in the 60s, I have no doubt that James Mason would have been Governor Nix. Frank, age becomes you. Is that your flicker, Frank? They gobbled it up like a chocolate eclair. So we've got all these Pierre Clark units trying to run up and catch them before they take off. Much to, you know, the uh, chagrin of the three heroes who see them on the outside window. And Athena has to translate for them, of course, because they don't speak French. Frank Walker, you're in violation of 83 laws. You'll be vaporized if you don't stop immediately. What did he say? Pretty much what you'd expect. Tell him to hang on. I really love the interior set for this spectacle capsule. It's got the four chairs for the four founders, but of course there's only three of them. So there's this eternally empty one other chair on the other side. It's just, it's just great visual storytelling. And the design of it is so beautiful. It's maybe one of the best realizations of that classically steampunk aesthetic that I've seen in a movie. So we have this launch sequence. This rocket is powered by this Tesla energy, which has these blue tendrils of energy cascading across the rocket. It's visually so spectacular. And it's matched by Giacchino's most soaring rendition of the Plus Ultra theme. And we've got Casey in rare form. I don't think she is a character knew that she was about to experience her ultimate 
ambition in this moment. There's nothing more perfectly tailored to Casey's desires as a character than accessing Tomorrowland through an antique rocket ship. As someone who started the movie with us dismantling a set of cranes that was attempting to take down a launch gantry, she now finds herself uh, going into space. And when they're up in space, there's an interesting moment that we actually know was filmed. We'll put a link in the show notes to some of the B-roll from the film that shows a zero-G moment when they're up in space. There's a shot where Athena has been rigged up on wires to be floating. So that wasn't present in the screenplay as far as I can tell. But uh, I think that would have been an interesting little bit. They're all wearing these big seatbelts, so I'm not exactly sure when that moment would have happened. But we do know that it was filmed. Narratively, the piece of information that we're getting in this scene is the expectation that Casey thinks they're going to another planet or they're going to the moon. Is Tomorrowland in another solar system? What's going on? Is there a hyperdrive uh, on this ship? But of course, we careen past the moon and we turn back towards Earth. And Casey is befuddled. We went all the way up to space just to come back, just to get a running start. We're going back. And then, of course, she is corrected by Athena, who says, no, we're going through. And for the audience who is not familiar with the transdimensional concepts established in Before Tomorrowland, this is when you cannot ignore any longer what Tomorrowland is. It is not the future. It is not the deep, deep past. It is not another planet. It is Earth. It is an alternate dimension Earth. And this is how they're going to pierce through the veil and get there. One thing I love about this antique rocket capsule circling the moon, I love the sort of duality with Walt Disney standing in front of the moon in that press photo that was hanging in the blast from the past door. And now we have the rocket circling in front of the moon. In our modern world, everywhere we look, things that seem impossible now will become realities tomorrow. Tomorrowland. Follow the clues. Come with us. Uncover the secret. No way. Discover tomorrow. Hang on. You ain't seen nothing yet. Disney's Tomorrowland. Rated PG. The Clooney line, just before they start pulsing through, big grin on his face. This is going to get a little weird. I love this sort of throwback of Here we are towards the end of the film. We're in the last act kind of, and we're in this same sort of role of, of, you know, of Clooney as a kid standing in the world's fair transport, breaking his way through to Tomorrowland. You have this just, you know, these sort of bookends and he's in this scene. He's legitimately excited to go back. He knows it's broken. He knows Nix is probably going to kill them, but it doesn't matter. He's still excited to go back. And I just, I love that. For me, it calls to mind the emotions of an annual pass holder who's been denied access to <laughs> Disneyland for so long. And even though those people might be frustrated with the process of getting back, the prospect of going back, even without any kind of recognized membership, there is an excitement there, jaded though it may be, protesting the current Nick's administration, as one may be, there's still that excitement. I get to go back. Even if this is a fallen kingdom, I've got to get back there. There is still something so appealing about it, even in the state that we will find it in the next episode. And the moment that they break through, you know, I love that you, as you see them flying down the great shot that cuts between our earth and the Tomorrowland city, There does seem to be a time dilation between the two because it's nighttime in Paris, but in Tomorrowland, it's daytime. 
And what I love is, is that it breaks through. And the moment that the capsule hits that first building, at least for me, when I initially watched the film in, you know, when we saw it in the Chinese, the way that that scene was designed, you know, there's something wrong with Tomorrowland the moment that the vehicle hits the first building. Absolutely. We don't, we don't have any birds in the air. The, the, the weather is different, right? It's the buildings are all gray. It's so monotone. It's so antiseptic. There's no life to it. There's no vibrancy. And you're right. This is absolutely a cinematic decision. There's a way you could have shot this that preserved the reveal. But the minute they pierce through, there's something in the framing of these shots that is so realistic. This is this is as realistic a handheld cinema verite window as Brad Bird gives us at any point in this movie. And even though it's completely computer generated from top to bottom, this crash sequence to me feels viscerally so real. There is something really artistfully done in how it's framed, how things are moving through the frame, and indeed the design and lighting and coloring of what is in that frame. It is bleak from the moment they get there. And I just think that is superbly well done. It unsettles you from the very first moment, you know, even beyond just the physical concern for your characters in any crash landing sequence, which we now know, thanks to a few pieces of concept art that have surfaced, there was an earlier version that saw our three heroes crash landing further out you know, perhaps even past the wheat field, having to make their way through. And there's sort of these surveillance drone spheres that make their way around to find them. But they actually have to make their way into the city uh, before they get captured. So we see the spectacle crashing into these buildings. We see Casey get thrown in her restraint and we cut to black. As Casey, Frank, and Athena have finally reached Tomorrowland with varying levels of consciousness intact, we have reached the end of this episode. A glimmer of hope has returned to our jaded exile's eyes, and a young dreamer's greatest dream has been unexpectedly fulfilled. With each step, their adventure brings them closer to revealing the truth, both for themselves and for the entire world. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at the Tomorrow Time or send us an email at press at tomorrowlandtimes.com. That's P-R-E-S-S at tomorrowlandtimes.com. If you'd like to record us an audio message, we'd love to hear any memories you might have of the first time you saw Tomorrowland or any reactions you've had to any of our commentary throughout these past episodes. We just might play it on one of our future episodes. We want to thank everyone for continuing to take this walk through Tomorrowland with us. Join us next time as we attempt to parse the Walker algorithm. We'll be joining you as always from Tomorrowland Times, which we will keep alive as long as humanly possible to ensure that there is always a place where dreamers can stick together. together.